Return to the Word is made possible by faithful supporters like you. Find out more at returntotheword.com. Welcome to another edition of Return to the Word Radio with Bible teacher Mark Fontecchio. Advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now with today's message, here is our teacher. We stand before James 3. Convicting words are found here to be sure, but words that offer guidance, words that give us firm direction regarding some of the toughest issues, some of the hardest situations any group of Christians may face. Bible's open to James 3, and we start our study with verse 1. My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. Indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. Look also at ships, although they are so large and are driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. See how great a forest a little fire kindles, and the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature and it is set on fire by hell. The tragic death of President Abraham Lincoln in 1865 was a profound blow to the people of the northern states. A funeral train proceeded through the northern cities carrying his body, and hundreds of thousands of people came out to mourn the loss of their president. But no one could have guessed that after the funeral, his coffin would be moved a total of 17 times, and the coffin itself would be opened at least five times. On a few occasions, his body was actually transferred to a different coffin. President Lincoln was on the move. The last two times his coffin was opened, the caretakers of his grave checked to make sure that it was actually his body inside, because rumors of Lincoln's body not being in the coffin, had made their way throughout the land. People accepted this as truth, that his body was not there. So in 1887, the coffin was opened, and 18 people filed past to witness the remains. This was 22 years after his death. Every witness testified that his body was there, and Lincoln was again laid to rest. But by 1901, the rumors again were sweeping throughout the land, even though it had been opened only 14 years before. And again, it was considered common knowledge that Abraham Lincoln was not in his coffin. The more the lie was repeated, the more it was believed by the people. The decision was made to open the casket one final time. Lincoln was now in a coffin that was lined with lead. Two plumbers chiseled out a section just over his head and shoulders. As soon as the hole was open, a harsh, choking smell poured out of the coffin. Twenty-three people took turns looking into the opening just to make sure it was him. 
According to their testimony, even though it had been 36 years since he was killed, his facial features had not changed much at all. His hair, beard, and mole on his face were all still there. Lincoln had the same suit on, but now it was covered in yellow mold. His eyebrows had fallen off. His gloves had rotted onto his hands. But it was most certainly the body of President Abraham Lincoln. It's been speculated that the number of times the body was embalmed while his body was on the funeral train led to a corpse that is practically mummified. To make sure none of this would ever happen again, the casket was soldered back together and placed into a steel cage. And then 4,000 pounds of concrete were poured to encase both the cage and the casket. The body of President Lincoln has not moved since. You know, each time a lie is repeated, it's given new life. This is just one of the many dangers of the tongue. Too often, the accepted truth of what we hear about others, it differs greatly from the reality. Our text before us deals with the power of the tongue. It deals with how we use our words because our words have the ability to build up our brothers and sisters in Christ. Our words have the ability to glorify the Lord, but they also have the terrifying ability to bring horrible destruction to the body of Christ. Our words have the ability to dishonor our Savior. There is power in our words. Verse 1 begins, My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. James had been driving in this direction. Go back a page or so to chapter 1, verse 19. James had already told us the direction he was going to take the letter. Notice verse 19 in the first chapter. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. And then again in verse 26 of chapter 1. If anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. Then down in chapter 2, verse 12, so speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. What James is getting at is that the living faith we have in Christ, it should produce self-control that comes to us as a part of the fruit of the Spirit. That self-control is best tested with how we control the tongue. Even the ability to speak is a great gift from God himself, but the warning stands to be on guard with how we use our words to make sure we glorify Christ. Back in our text in chapter 3, put verse 1 into context of this entire discussion of taming the tongue. Taming the tongue is critical for those who are called to teach the precious truth of God. Because the constant use of the tongue, the constant use of words, puts those who teach in regular danger of leading others astray. And therefore, the risk of judgment is that much greater. Verse 1 again, My brethren, let not many of you become teachers. Why? Well, remember at this point, this is early, mid-40s, about a decade after the crucifixion of Christ. These Jewish Christians were huddled up in homes after the death of Stephen, fleeing persecution. The Jews considered a rabbi to be a teacher, but remember that in the first century, it would not have been that uncommon to have many people in the assembly who could not read. 
For the poor, they had few opportunities to move up the social ladder, and despite the best of intentions, it would have been natural for some to look up to those in the assembly who had the responsibility of laboring in the word. And it would seem that the problem had come up that too many in these home churches, too many in these assemblies were seeking to become teachers, and they were doing so for all the wrong reasons. Now, James included himself in the stricter judgment that will come for teachers of the word of God by saying, we, we shall receive. But there was more going on. Remember the freedom they had as the church first started out in their worship. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 26 reads, How is it then, brethren, whenever you come together, each of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. The freedom they had in their worship in the first century church came out of the liberty the Jews had in the Jewish synagogues, where many men looking to teach could get a hearing. Listen to a few verses from Acts 13, speaking of the ministry of Paul and Barnabas. But when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch in Pisidia and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. And after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent to them, saying, Men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. And then Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. And it was from that point that Paul began to teach. What we have as the church today in the West, it fails to compare to the close, intimate fellowship of the first century church. Services were not scripted. It was less informal, less structured. Men were free to speak. One would bring a psalm another an exhortation, and someone else would give a message from the Word of God. There is no evidence in the New Testament or in history that after Stephen was stoned in Acts that in the first century there was ever a church larger than 50 people. There might have been, but we don't know about it. Mostly small congregations. The freedom to teach that came out of the synagogues, it rolled over into the church. But with any good thing, it can go too far. And that is why James literally said here, do not press yourself, do not press yourself into the role of teaching. Be sure you are called to teach. Be sure you are gifted, equipped. Certain men had a little too much pride, not recognizing the high calling of laboring in the word of God hour after hour to make sure we are rightly dividing it. Some men want the esteem of being recognized before others as a teacher, but so few, so few in the church today are willing to pay the price that is demanded of that position. Paul warned Timothy that men like this desire to be teachers, but they do not understand what they say, nor the things which they affirm. James was not trying to hold back those called by God to teach, to carry on the work of laboring in the word and teaching the word in the assembly of believers. But those that shouldn't be need to be confronted, and it needs to happen more today. We need students of the word. In this one verse, James refers to them as brethren and refers to judgment. Now, the only judgment that believers will face is the judgment seat of Christ, which has been the context before this. 
James sought to warn those who made reckless statements, misleading statements about the truth of God. The warning is that teachers will receive a stricter judgment, not condemnation as the old King James has, stricter judgment. James is looking forward to the time when every believer stands before Christ. Do you remember the words of Christ in Matthew 5.19? Those that teach men to break the commandments of God would be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But those that teach them, rightly dividing the word of truth, will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. There is a warning here to those who stand up to teach without taking the time to labor in the word, rightly dividing the word. Increased influence in the lives of others means an increased responsibility before God. The greater impact upon others, the greater accountability. But listen, this is not just about what is taught from the pulpits. It matters what believers teach others. Christians don't think twice when sharing things, books, videos, devotions, and every one of us will give an account for what we teach others in the faith at the judgment seat of Christ. There will be different degrees of judgment. Those who live for the praise of men, they have their reward right now. Those motivated by love for the Lord, laboring in the word, rightly dividing the word with a desire to edify and build up the saints of God, then we can welcome this judgment, for it will mean a great reward. James is reminding us that every word we speak is being recorded in heaven. Take a look at verse 2. For we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. It is said that a group of frogs were traveling through the woods, and two of them fell into a deep pit. All the other frogs gathered around the pit, and when they saw how deep the pit was, they told the two fallen frogs that they were as good as dead. And the two fallen frogs, they ignored their comments and tried to jump out of the pit with all of their might. The other frogs kept telling them to stop, that they were as good as dead. And finally, one of the fallen frogs took heed to what they were saying and gave up. He laid down and died. But the other fallen frog continued to jump as hard as he could. And once again, the crowd of frogs yelled at him to stop the pain and just die. He jumped harder and harder, and he finally made it out. And when he got out, the other frog said to him, Did you not hear us? And the frog explained to them that he was deaf. He thought they were trying to encourage him the entire time. This simple story, it teaches us two lessons. There is power of life and death in the tongue. An encouraging word to someone who is down can lift them up and help them make it through the day. But a destructive word to someone who is down can be what it takes to kill them. What if it wasn't a frog? What if it was another person? I've seen it happen. I was in middle school, and when I got on the bus to go home, a bunch of kids were picking on this girl. She was a little strange. She had problems and was a little on the homely side. And what no one knew was that she came from a broken family. They were poor, and they had their problems. The kids were without mercy, as they often are. And the last words spoken to her that afternoon on the bus were, why don't you just do us all a favor and kill yourself? She did. She went home, and she killed herself. Words are powerful. 
They can tell people about life in Christ, or they can be used to destroy others. And that is what James is starting to get at now with verse 2. He takes it past just the teachers of the Word of God. Every person stumbles in their faith. Every Christian stumbles in their words. We all know that words have a way of escaping out of our mouths before they are carefully considered. By stumbling, James is speaking of sin. We stumble in our walk, in our faith. The tongue can be used to tell a dirty joke, to speak profanity, gossip, to lie. I love the humility of James here. He included himself. He admitted his own weakness. He admitted his own failures. According to James, no person is able to master the tongue. Not completely. And that is why James hits at this in the text. How much we speak, how much we control our tongue is an indicator of what is taking place with our faith. Control of the tongue comes about by maturity in Christ. Control of the tongue comes from the Spirit of God as we learn to submit ourselves to Him. Our words reveal our hearts. But if you are not at fault in your speech, if you don't stumble in your speech, if you don't gossip, lie, or sin with your words, then James teaches us that you are a perfect man able to bridle the whole body. Perfect here is not referring to sinless perfection. The wording describes this person as having reached a goal of maturity in the faith. He is living in submission to the Spirit of God, and because the tongue is the most difficult part of the body to keep under control, victory with the battle of the tongue means that he is able to bring himself into submission to God. Let's say it like this. The tongue is the hardest part to bring into submission to the will of God. If you can get your tongue under control, you are heading in the right direction in your faith. So let's be careful here. James is not teaching us that only the sinless person is able to control the tongue. He's admitting that, yes, we all stumble, but the mature person, the mature person in Christ, the follower of Christ, who is abiding in the Lord Jesus, they're able to become perfect, meaning mature or complete in Christ, able to bring the tongue, able to bring their body into submission to the Savior. They will still sin but the general pattern of their life will be that the tongue is brought under control. Now, this is important to your faith because this means James is not referring to some lofty goal that we cannot reach. This is something that we can truly work on, submitting more to the Savior, reaching maturity in Christ, meaning that control of the tongue is a product of faith. And if faith can control the tongue, it can rule over everything. Notice the illustrations from James in verses 3 and 4. Indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. Look also at ships. Although they are so large and are driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires. Follow the flow of the text. James just referred to the mature man in Christ able to bridle the whole body. Out of this comes the illustration of putting bits in horses' mouths that they obey and we can turn the entire body of the animal. Now, this is just a great illustration. A horse is much larger than man. A horse is much stronger than man. A horse is brought into submission, not because we have greater power than the horse, but it is because we understand how to apply the bit, how to apply the bridle. 
in just the right place, which brings the horse under control. So it is that the tongue and the body of a believer in Christ is brought into submission to God, not not by the strength of men, but by the understanding that the power of the Spirit of God is what brings the tongue under control. The goal with a horse is not just control of the mouth, but obedience of the entire animal. And so here is what we need to understand with this point. James is not just talking about the control of the tongue, is he? He's talking about our entire faith, how we live out our faith. Control of the horse's mouth means that we could control the direction of the entire animal. The ships in verse 4 is another powerful illustration because it illustrates the control of a tiny rudder. You know, they had some pretty impressive ships back in their day. We know, for example, in Acts 27, the ship that was carrying Paul on his way to Rome had 276 passengers on board and a load of wheat. The horses back in verse 3 have a will of their own. The ships of verse 4 do not. But the ships, they did have the strong winds beating on them. And yes, the ships used the wind to move them. But without the rudder, a ship cannot be brought under control. And the point that James is driving at is that these massive ships were steered by a small, tiny rudder. Yes, the winds were at work. Yes, the ships were massive, but they were still brought under control by a rudder. In those days, the rudder looked like a big old oar on the back of these ships. And we can tell from the wording used in Acts 27 that on the ship that carried Paul to Rome, it had actually two of these rudders on the back, one on each side of the stern. And when a storm would hit, not only would they make sure they had control of the sails, but they would make sure that they had firm control of the rudder. And I think, friends, that is exactly what we need to do when storms hit us in life. We lose control of our rudder. We lose control of the tongue speaking things that we should not. When the storms beat down on our lives, we need to ask God to place his hands on the rudder because he knows best how to guide our ship through the narrow course of life. Look at the wording from James. The ships are large, massive, driven by fierce winds, but they are turned by a very small rudder. Notice this next part, wherever the pilot desires. Despite the size of the ship, despite the fierce winds, the pilot is in control through the use of the rudder. Notice that the pilot has to take some action. He doesn't just sit back and expect things to happen. He sets the course and applies pressure to the tiller of the rudder to accomplish his purpose. The one in control of the rudder is the one in control of the course of the entire ship. So here's the point. If the tongue can be brought under control, this person is living by faith. This person is able to bring their body into submission to Christ a small piece of a rope, some straps of leather on a horse, or a rudder on a ship. In the same way, the tongue can steer the direction of a person's life. You can let your tongue steer you to places that you do not want to go. Or you can use it to steer you to a path that honors Christ. Teaching others about the Christian faith and heaping up rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. God has a destination in mind for you in your faith and your tongue, how you use it, it plays a very important role in your journey. James applies it in the first part of verse 5. Even so, the tongue 
is a little member and boasts great things. The mouth of a horse is small. The rudder of a ship is tiny, but the influence they have is not. James says it like this, the tongue boasts great things. It has power. It impacts every area of our life and our faith. Take the last part of verse five and verse six together. See how great a force a little fire kindles. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature. And it is set on fire by hell. When fire is not controlled, it destroys lives. Since this was written to early first century Jewish believers fleeing Jerusalem, I tend to think that James had in mind not so much the towering trees, but the brushwood that was common in the land of Judea, the hillside covered with a dry brush. In the dry season, it was a tinderbox ready to explode at the smallest spark. Still happens today. But when the brush fires spread, what makes them so devastating is that they are not controlled, and the uncontrolled tongue can be just as destructive. The smallest spark of an uncontrolled tongue finds plenty of wood to set on fire. The tongue is a fire. Powerful words. No stronger statement has ever been made about the danger of the tongue if it is left uncontrolled. Notice this expression that the tongue is a world of iniquity. The tongue is an instrument for evil, for iniquity. It is a force of unrighteousness and evil against which believers must stand in constant conflict. The tongue plays a significant role in the sins of men. And then we read, the tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body. No other part of the human body has the power and ability to be such an influence for evil. It can put to words every evil thought of man, every angry thought. It can defile the whole person. There are few sins that do not involve the tongue. Bitterness sours our speech. Pride rattles on and on. Hate explodes from the lips of men. And then look at these last two statements in verse 6. Still speaking about the tongue. And sets on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire by hell. James is speaking about the entire course of life, not nature so much, but life. So if your translation says nature in verse six, replace it with the word life. The tongue sets on fire the entire course of life. You see, an uncontrolled tongue can produce the same level of destruction as that of an uncontrolled spark on a forest. The tongue out of control can cause any relationship to burst into flames. And here comes the reason the tongue is a destructive fire at the end of verse six. The tongue is only the fuse. The source of the deadly fire is hell itself. The wickedness of an uncontrolled tongue has a connection with the works of hell. So James writes this in the continued action, letting us know that the uncontrolled tongue is continually set on fire by hell, meaning the uncontrolled tongue allows itself to be used by the demons. It is the demonic inspiration that prods along the wickedness of men, including the tongue. These Jewish Christians would have caught the meaning instantly of Gehenna or hell. It refers to the Hinnom Valley, which runs along the south side of Jerusalem. They used to stack all their garbage there. It was being burned constantly. It made a fitting illustration for the lake of fire, the eternal place of torment and punishment. 
James is saying, you know that trash dump south of town, that stinky fire? Our tongues are just like that. Because when our tongues get going, the garbage of our hearts is set ablaze. Our tongues have the ability to let everyone hear the wickedness of our hearts. The tongue is the gate through which the evil influences of those that will occupy hell can spread like fire to inflame everything in life that we touch. An uncontrolled tongue can become the tool for spreading the fires of hell. And a tongue yielded to God, according to Isaiah 6, can be touched by fire from God's altar to be used in his service. In May of 1864, a conflict that many military leaders in our country predicted would last but a few months was now in its third year. The Civil War, the bloodiest conflict ever fought on U.S. soil, it continued to rage on and on. Great battles such as Gettysburg had already been fought, but there was still plenty of tragedy to come. One such occasion came in a lesser-known battle in Virginia. From May 3rd to May 8th, a battle was fought that would forever be remembered as the Wilderness. One of the commanding generals of the Union Army, John Gibbon, described the area of the battle as an almost impenetrable thicket where the visibility was only two to three yards. This incredibly dense area of trees, vegetation, and underbrush, it saw two great armies converge on its soil. Now, the Union Army, which by now vastly outnumbered the Confederates, it brought 102,000 men to bear. The South only had about 61,000. Over 25,000 men between the two armies were killed or wounded, the majority of them falling within a two-day period. As tragic as the massive loss of life was, the death of 200 men illustrates what we see in our text in James. The majority of soldiers were still using muzzle-loaded rifles. The men carried cartridges and pouches on their belts, and the cartridges were made up of lead shot completely covered with paper and gunpowder. Tens of thousands of rifles were fired throughout the forest, and the end result was that the ground was littered with confetti-sized debris from all these rifles firing. As the paper hit the ground, it was still hot from the exploding gunpowder. And with all that paper on the ground, it took very little for the heat from the paper to spark. The spark grew quickly into a forest fire that spread through the wilderness. Trapped within this raging fire were 200 men. Some wore blue, some wore gray. And by mutual consent, the two war-torn armies suspended the fighting in order to try to save these men. But the flame and the smoke was too intense. Neither side could reach the men in time. What started as a small spark was the one thing a ceasefire could not control. And even though thousands of men died from the effects of hot lead and cold steel, those who survived would forever remember the 200 lives that were destroyed, for they saw firsthand how a great forest was set aflame by such a small fire. It just takes a spark, and then it gets out of control. James says the same thing is true of the tongue. You make a simple statement, a comment, and then things begin to get out of control. Lives are destroyed by the fire of the tongue. The tongue, left unchecked, left unbridled, 
A tongue that is left out of control destroys churches, families, marriages. It boasts. It tears others down. But a tongue that is under control is one that speaks with humility. It will be one that speaks of love, joy, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It reflects the fruit of the Spirit. Proverbs 18.21 says that death and life are in the power of the tongue. This is a warning of Scripture. On more than one occasion, Jesus said that what was in a person's heart inevitably comes out of his mouth. Just like water flowing from a well, the words that come out of your mouth accurately reveal the purity of the source. And if the source is the Spirit of God governing our lives, the words will be pure. If the source is a sinful heart, they will be impure. And that is what James has been warning about since chapter 1, impure faith. The simple but hard truth is that too often we are willing to raise ourselves up by stomping others down. We seek to make ourselves feel better or look better, but we are asking others to foot the bill because we are willing to destroy others, ruin reputations and lives in order to improve our own standing before men. Ask God for help. Pray for God to give you a stronger and deeper walk. Ask Him to forgive you. Ask His help in forgetting the things done to you. Ask Him to help you to resist the temptation of firing back with words every time someone says or does something that is against you. Choose to make your mode of love, love for Jesus Christ, love for His people. We end our time together with the words from Jude. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and forever. Amen. The rapture, Israel, the tribulation, the kingdom of God, the millennium, the judgment seat of Christ, the battle of Armageddon. These are just some of the topics that we cover in our book, What Lies Ahead. We wanted to write a book that was easy to understand, that would give a good, solid overview of the end times. You can find it on our website, returntotheword.com. That book again is What Lies Ahead. And if you've read it, leave us a review on Amazon. It helps us. It helps us to tell others about this study of God's plan for the end times. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you next time on Return to the Word. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word.